Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Kia ora and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the cross-hemisphere film review podcast with me, Dan, realising that my dog has a hidden stash of my socks somewhere in the backyard in <laughs> Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> and me, Conrad, already counting down to Christmas in Cambridge, UK. Mm, it's that season. Uh, in this podcast, we discuss fantastical films, sci-fi, horror, and fantasy because we love preventing future world wars, maniacal world leaders, and discussing gun violence. Hang on, wait a minute. I mean, we love blood, spaceships, and unicorns. Definitely blood, spaceships, yes. and unicorns. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, hello, Dan. How are you? <laughs> Good, thank you. And you? Yeah. I'm slightly stunned by the revelation that Baxter is hiding your socks <laughs> in the garden. <laughs> he goes outside and he comes back with a sock that I haven't seen for weeks. So there's definitely a stash going on. <laughs> but you haven't found them yet. <laughs> no. It's not the time of year to be without socks, though, is it really? Oh, I mean, it's coming up to summer for us, so... Uh, oh, of course. Oh, well, you're probably sockless most of the time. <laughs> Silly me. Since our last episode of The Faculty, I have actually started watching a series with Josh Hartnett in it, and it's amazing. Oh. It's the series called oh. Penny Dreadful. I don't know whether you've seen that or heard of it. I have heard of it, but I haven't watched it. Isn't it any good? It's amazing. It's amazing. And Josh Hartnett oh. is incredible in it. It's also got Billy Piper uh, in it as well. And it's really good. It's kind of based on all the old horror stories and monsters. So it's got Frankenstein and it. it's got vampires, it's got werewolves, and it's set in 1800s London. It's great. Ah, well, that sounds fun. Well, I've just checked. It's not on Netflix in the UK, but it is on Now TV. So if anybody in the UK wants to watch it, that's where they can find yeah. it. Yeah. Please check it out. Well, we had lots of feedback on the faculty. Yes. In our mailbag. On the Tommy Hilfiger ad that the entire cast of the faculty was forced to do. Yes. <laughs> as a tie-in. I had not previously watched it, and when you shared it, I was in disbelief that this was <laughs> a real thing. <laughs> No, it's Could so not bad. Believe it. Yeah, so on Facebook when I shared it, Matthew Lister commented, It reminds me of early Nintendo ads. Like, what about this makes me want to buy the product? I'm watching people have a mental breakdown. <laughs> if I wear your clothes, I will in theory also have a mental breakdown. I don't want that. <laughs> But on the faculty itself, we had lots of people commenting on whether they thought it was a classic deserving of release from the Oubliette. Anthony Dale Roberts said, It's a classic, a great retelling of Body Snatchers. Mm. Michael James Pye said, It's not a classic, but it's a personal classic to a lot of people. I liked it. Yeah. And Ben Kratke said... Well, I saw it seven times in theatres as a 13-year-old. It's fucking great. <laughs> wow. That is an endorsement. That is a lot of times, seven times in theatres. Yeah. Wow. I, I mean, I remember seeing The Lion King twice, and I thought that was crazy. <laughs> but seven <laughs> times. Oh, my God. I have never been back to theatres to watch a movie a second time, oh, ever. Really? No. Yeah, I have only a couple of times, but um, yeah, I have. I mean, I've gone to retrospectives, like I'm I'm looking forward to, they're doing a retrospective of Gremlins for this Christmas, uh, because it's it's a scary anniversary, it's something like 40 years or something, it's oh, something wow. really depressing. <laughs> yeah, it's coming back to cinemas this year, so I'm going to see that, but I've never sort of... On a release that's still out, I've never gone back and watched it again. Right, ever. right. Okay. 
Well done, Ben Kratke. Obviously, the faculty really did it for you, demonstrating that personal classic status that yeah. he obviously has. Sure did. I guess, are we going to be discussing a personal classic in this episode, Conrad? Who knows? Let me scamper over to the oubliette and find out. Yeah. Oh! <coughs> wow, it's all on fire in here. Wow. <laughs> What is going on? That poor goldfish, the bowl is boiling. Oh, it just exploded. Okay, I think I've got a film. The ice is Oh shit, my leg's still on fire. (laughs) What do you have, Conrad? I have The Dead Zone, a 1983 adaptation of a Stephen King novel directed by none other than David Cronenberg Mm. and starring Christopher Walken, Brooke Adams, Tom Skerritt, Herbert Lom, Anthony Zerbe, Zerbe, Zerber, not sure, Colleen Dewhurst, and Martin Sheen. I am a huge fan of David Cronenberg. Can't wait to check it out. Yeah. Well, in this one, Christopher Walken plays the quirkily named John Smith, an eerily pale schoolteacher who teaches nothing other than morbid poetry in Castle Rock, Maine, a town locked in a winter that seems to last longer than Narnia's. His happy-go-lucky lifestyle is interrupted when he drives his VW bug into the side of a milk tanker and falls into a coma presumably because of extreme lactose intolerance. When he wakes up, Johnny discovers he's lost five years, his partner, Sarah, has married somebody else, and worst of all, he gets psychic flashes whenever he touches people. Johnny struggles with his newfound power of second sight, occasionally using it for good by helping the local sheriff hunt down a serial killer or preventing ice hockey accidents. But his biggest dilemma comes when Johnny touches political candidate Greg Stilson and discovers he will one day push the big red button and destroy the world. Should he become a crazed lone assassin and take out the sinister senator, or should he stick to his quiet life of traumatising young children with unblinking stares and staccato readings of Edgar Allan Poe? Find out as we enter the dead zone. (laughs) And we won't be alone. We'll be joined by a special guest. Wow. Stay tuned to find out after the break. Welcome back. Our guest today hails from Aotearoa, New Zealand, land of the long white cloud, and is a renowned writer, director of such modern Kiwi classics as Reality, Under the Mountain, The Tattooist, and Black Sheep, which we actually covered in our 11th episode, son of New Zealand's distinguished historian Michael King, author of Penguin, History of New Zealand. We welcome the hugely talented Jonathan King. Hello. Hello. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Uh, I did want to start off by saying I am so happy that there is a movie adaptation of Under the Mountain because I feel like every kid growing up read that book. I read that book many times. Oh, great. And I'm still waiting on someone to make an adaptation of Half Men of O because that would be amazing. A lot of people have been circling that one, funnily enough, for a long time. I know it's been through lots of people's hands. Oh, really? Really? Under the Mountain, I mean, I was totally grew up on it, the um, the book and the TV series uh-huh. too, and it, and it blew everybody's minds when it first came out in like 1980. Yeah, right. And so that's what we wanted to do with the film, but it was actually, it was about five years after I made the film and I was in the shower one day and I went, oh my God, Lord of the Rings already does that for everybody's heads. They already think that's the classic New Zealand fantasy. So um, No, not at <laughs> <all>. <laughs> We realised that it was, it was never going to do what we hoped it was going to do. What it had done in 1980, it was never going to do again. But there you go. I love it anyway. Uh, I think it's a great story and great movie adaptation. Oh, thank you. Well, speaking of adaptations, which <laughs> film are we looking at today? Today, uh, we are going to be talking about The Dead Zone. So, mm. Jonathan, uh, you picked this film. Had you seen it before? I hadn't seen it before, actually. Um, I read the book a very long time ago. Uh-huh. Yes, yeah, so I'm a big Stephen King fan, and I'm a big Christopher Walken fan, and I'm a big David Cronenberg fan. Uh-huh. Well, quite a big David Cronenberg fan. Yes. But yeah, funnily enough, had never seen the film. So um, I think I'd just seen somebody mention it. Right. And um, yeah, thought, oh, that could be cool. It's definitely one of Cronenberg's least talked about films. Mm. And it's the fact that it's a Stephen King 
adaptation as well. It just baffles my mind that no one talks about it. Yeah, it's not really ranked among the A-list of King adaptations like The Shining, The Shawshank Redemption. Mm. And I think people don't talk about it in terms of Cronenberg because it's very different from everything that Cronenberg did before Yeah, and pretty much doesn't have a lot in common with what he did afterwards. No, not at all. I mean, obviously a kind of pivotal point in his career, I guess. Because mm. I was trying to work out if it was his first bigger film Videodrome was before that, mm. but even that was pure Cronenberg, that one. And mm. um, But this is sort of him stepping into the mainstream, you'd almost say. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But perhaps as we will discover in our conversation, I don't know what you guys found, but we might discover there are reasons that <laughs> it's not quite talked about. Oh, right. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a huge Christopher Walken fan, to be honest. I kind of feel like he became a parody of himself after a while. And I don't know whether he works this film. I think he's kind of miscast in this movie. He seems really blank, just very emotionless. Sonically, you can hear emotion with what he's saying, but his face is just blank <laughs> to me. Yeah. He's also a little old to play Johnny Smith because I think he was 40 at the time of filming. Ah, right. And I know that Cronenberg originally wanted to have Nicholas Campbell play Johnny Smith, but of course he wasn't a big name. He was just one of Cronenberg's regular Canadian actors that he worked with quite often. Uh-huh. So instead, Nicholas Campbell ends up being Deputy Frank Dodd. Right. Spoilers. Yes. The Castle Rock killer. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he was great. I mean, you can see perhaps what attracted Cronenberg because mm. he's quite creepy. He's sort of handsome, but um, something uh, not right about him. Mm. <laughs> yeah, mm. definitely. But I, th- I mean, I was struck at the beginning of the film, too, I mean, because Christopher Walken's so good at being really strange and everything. <laughs> But at the beginning of this film, our hero is meant to be a really nice uh, teacher of children and the sweet guy that something weird happens to. But he's completely strange at the beginning. He's Christopher Walken at the beginning. Did you get that? So it's like, he's like, he's reading. Well, kids, you're reading for today. And it's like, ugh. Yeah. I'm also worried about him as a teacher in general because he only ever seems to teach kids really, really morbid things. It's just the raven, Sleepy Hollow, and the part of Sleeping Beauty where instead of dying, she falls into a profound sleep for a hundred years. Now, I know it's all references to comas and second sight and so on and so forth, but I don't know, if I were a parent, I wouldn't send my kid to Christopher Mm. Walken Mm. for tutoring. Yeah, Yeah, and... um, (laughs) I mean, spoilers jumping ahead a little bit. There's his close relationship with young Jimmy later on, or whoever his name is. Oh, uh, Chris. Yeah. yeah. Which is kind of, well, you know, I mean, it's what we maybe read into at this day and age, but um, <laughs> was a bit strange. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> maybe that's unfair, but I think it says something about he's not quite right. Mm. Mm. His character didn't really develop as well. He just seemed the same. And some pretty shocking things were happening. And if you freeze framed anywhere in the film, it would just be the same face that he would be making. And <laughs> whereas the actress that played Sarah, Brooke Adams, she was amazing. Yeah, I thought yeah. she completely lit up the screen every time she was on. She radiated so much warmth and you could feel that sort of connection that she had with uh, Johnny. But Johnny did not seem to reciprocate that same warmth. Yeah. <laughs> or deserve it, in fact. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's in um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1979, mm. and she's really good in that. And, and funnily enough, seemed to be um, married to an almost identical kind of dull pod person in this as she was in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> oh, she, in that film, she's really in love with Donald Sutherland, but she's married to this... Um, incredibly dull guy so yes although i don't know whether her husband is a secret fascist supporter in that movie or not <laughs> right well and that he's clearly one of the um invading pod people in that yeah mm. yeah i don't know with walken i mean i don't think he goes full walken no in this movie no. i think he has a couple of the ice is gonna break <laughs> kind of full-on <laughs> walken scenes yes and the rest of the time he just comes across as slightly quirky haunted pale strange frightening see that's the thing when you get to the scene sort of later on after he's gone into hiding albeit in a house with his name right next to the front door yeah, yeah. but he's gone into hiding and he's tutoring privately and he's trying to stay away from the media because he doesn't want all the attention for being clairvoyant he opens the front door because his doctor Herbert Lom pays him a visit and Herbert Lom stops and sort of looks shocked at him because you're supposed to think gosh he 
looks so ill, it's obviously taking its toll on him, but he just looks like Christopher Walken. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah. There's no change, really. Yeah. I also found the plot of the film, and I don't know how close it was to the source material. Maybe, Jonathan, you can give us some insight about that. But it just felt like I was watching a TV show with episodes of things happening. So he wakes up, he has a premonition of a girl in the building, she gets saved, he moves on to the premonition of the serial killer, and he solves that, and then uh, the next is the premonition of the senator becoming president and the nuclear war scene. Well, there's the hockey scene as oh, well. Yes, so yeah, there, of course, yes. there are three episodes, aren't there? There's the Castle Rock Killer horror episode, uh-huh. there's the soap opera drama of the kid that's going to go through the ice in the hockey match and then there's the political thriller exactly so you have three movies bracketed by this overarching love story Mm. does it work well it's interesting that the martin sheen political story doesn't even really start until like 20 minutes before the end it was um yes i was quite Mm. struck that that, you know he'd sort of been seeded but they didn't kind of kick it off Mm. from memory the books certainly spent a lot more time with frank dodds the killer Mm. when we really got inside his head and his messed up mother and stuff like that. This sort of parallel thing until they met. Mm. Because in terms of the most sort of gripping segment of the movie, I found the serial killer part just, wow, really, really tense. And I love that scene where they finally catch him. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. It just seemed to have all these short kind of stories that just ended and concluded and then new characters were introduced into another story. And so I felt like it would be ascending tension and then release, and then attention release. It didn't feel cohesive as a overarching kind of movie. Hmm. Something that I was sort of struck by, and, and I think it's a big reason that Christopher Walken's performance doesn't click, is um, it's kind of about point of view. Like, we don't quite understand where he sits in it, and are we with him, or are we kind of, you know, are we watching what this means of him or are we in his soul, you know? And it kind of does kick up a notch when we do understand his point of view. Mm. And so that kind of Walken detachment Mm. exacerbates Pap's problems of point of view anyway. Like one of the most effective moments I thought was when the reporter, sort of early on the reporter's kind of goading him and he grabs his hand and says, you want to know why your sister died? Yeah. And it just kind of fired up because we understood how he felt, you know, where he was playing in the scene and how he felt about everything. Mm. And the scene where they're kind of going through Dodd's house and they find him. When the point of view is kind of working, it it all kind of clicked or it clicked better. Yeah. But this real detachment bumps you out of caring or understanding, I think. Yeah, I think a lot of the time he is frightening. You see him from other people's perspective. So the very first vision that he has when the nurse leans over him and he grabs her hand, stares up at her and says... Amy is screaming. It's incredibly intense, just his Mm. cold blue eyes, his pale face, he's covered in sweat and he's staring straight at her. So he seems to be viewed from an outside perspective a lot of the time as this bizarre, frightening, otherworldly, ethereal thing, which Walken is very good at being. Mm. But then as an identification figure in a tragic romance... Mm. It doesn't quite work as well. Yeah. Yeah, and then like the other, Chris, the little boy's dad comes to the door and he's weird. Mm. We don't kind of really believe him and he's sort of got a cravat on and <laughs> comb over. And, but we're not quite inside Christopher Walken or him. And and, and it's perhaps it's a Cronenberg thing too, that sort of detachment, that um, feeling in, in a lot of those moments, I think. Mm. Yeah, I think also the premonitions themselves are sort of inconsistent. Like where does Johnny sit in the premonition? Like the burning house scene, he's in the house, in her bed. And then the doctor that he... Um, sees him as a little boy in war-torn Poland or something. Johnny's not in the scene. Mm. We're kind of watching it as if it's like a movie. And then the murder, the serial killer scene, he's in there. Super mm. in there. And he tries to stop it, but he can't. And then the president about to explode the world scene, he's not there. So it's inconsistent. Mm. It's odd, isn't it? Because he was supposed to be in all of them and they shot him in all of them. Oh. In fact, even in the underwater hockey scene where Chris goes through the ice, you can still see his arm in one shot. Oh, right. So he was in all of those scenes, but in post-production, Cronenberg had some change of heart and edited him out, which is really strange because I find it really effective every time he's in them. Exactly. And it kind of tells the story. If the episodic nature of the film has an excuse, it's the central character is Johnny Smith, 
and each episode teaches him something different about how he should deal with this gift or curse that he's been given. Sure. So the first one, the Castle Rock Killer, he's frustrated because he can't interact with it. He can't do anything. He keeps saying, I did nothing. Right. I watched it happen. I did nothing. Mm. And then the hockey one, he starts to think, I can stop this. And once he realizes that he does, then he sets him on a path towards a political assassination. So... That's kind of the arc if the episodic mm, thing sure, has a, right. a justification. But I just wish that he were in every single one because I think visually it's effective. It would have rooted the audience with the main character a little more. Mm. And it would have made those scenes dramatic, whereas without him, they're just kind of expositional. Yes. They're just like, here's what's going to happen. It's like, okay, yeah, right. Info that we need. It's tell, don't show, you know. Mm. Whereas mm. they would have been drama if he was in there. What do I do? At least, you know, there's drama there. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like I wish this movie was more Cronenberg. (laughs) (laughs) So it's sort of more kind of shocking imagery and, I don't know, body horror and blood and guts and that sort of thing. But it it just seemed quite tame. And do you think it was a studio controlling what he was kind of doing? Is that what happened? i got to say, I think it's a kind of mismatch for the material. Uh The thing that Stephen King does the best over that whole enormous body of work is that he makes the... Normal. He's so good at normal world. He's so good at reality and real people. Yes. And you're so at ease with just, oh, I love these people. And I love being here. Or, you know, I believe I'm here. And then when the scary thing happens, it's like, oh, it's like, you know, punching the guts because it's so effective because you're so wedded to the reality. Yeah. Whereas David Cronenberg is incredibly good at making reality strange. That's mm. true. You know, and he can make Toronto incredibly creepy and cold and strange and off. Yes. You know. And I think that's just two fundamentally different ways of looking at the world and creating strangeness and creepiness. Um, It's just not a good match, I don't think. That's a very good point. Yeah. Because he does create, all of his movies are just incredibly strange. And so, yeah, the normal things seem strange in his worlds. Yeah. I've recently watched Dead Ringer and God, it's a weird movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And all of his characters have ridiculous names as well like Seth Brundle and Adrian Tripod and here we have the everyman John Smith you just couldn't get more anonymous than this yeah and apparently Cronenberg did fight to change the name but then realized that that's really what the film was about that he was putting this everyman school teacher into this ridiculous situation mm. I mean he likes marginalized characters guys that are pushed to the fringes of society by some special gift I mean he'd done this in scanners already sure uh, even with the same sort of psychic abilities although more explosive <laughs> yes that's sort of the one anchor point that i think cronenberg has this is one route into this film as being his first attempt at being a gun for hire for a studio mm. but it's not a good fit i think it's interesting the films that came after that you know i'm just looking at the list dead ringers the naked lunch m butterfly and crash Sorry, The Fly came next, um, you know, mm. which was that, you know, that's putting him into a studio commercial thing, but a good match, I think, you know, and just let him turn it up to 11, you know. Mm. So The Fly was a hit, I think, and then that let him make David Cronenberg films with a budget. Mm. And, um, you know, I think that's a um, an incredibly, well, a, the start of an incredibly creatively successful decade or more, you know, 15 years probably. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, I, I did find this film, The Dead Zone, just seemed very tame. <laughs> David Cronenberg turned up to one. Yeah. If you said it was any other director, I would have believed you. No, there's only one real moment of horror, and that is the Castle Rock Killer committing suicide with a pair of scissors yes. in the most horrific way possible, oh. which is a sequence that was largely excised when it was first released here in the UK. In fact, I didn't see oh, really? those shots of him. Certainly not the shot of his corpse twitching in the bath was definitely not in the first version of it that I saw oh, on VHS wow. back in the day as a kid. <laughs> wow. So I think it's just the Castle Rock Killer sequence. It seems to be like its own little mini-movie in and of itself. It gets yeah. really quite stylized, like exactly. when they're exploring the house and it's lit with green lighting for no apparent reason. So it just looks like this yeah. sickly, diseased house and this gargoyle of a mother that you just look at her for a moment and you realise the environment this kid has grown up in. Mm-hmm. And that terrible moment when Johnny touches her and realises that she knew 
knew the whole time what he was doing and hadn't done anything to stop him. Mm. Yeah, it's the one really harrowingly effective sequence in the film. Yeah, and even that shootout with the mother is, um, you know, doesn't really come off. Like the the, yeah. the build up to finding the guy in the bath is very effective and tense, and mm. then the quite clumsy. I thought the shootout with the mum and yes. stuff. It's, it's interesting. Some of the action, like the car crash at the beginning, felt very lame too. I thought, you know, oh, it looked like he was driving in about five k's an hour and he could have easily just braked in time and not crash into the milk tanker <laughs> and all of that way of shooting even quite straight drive, like later Cronenberg films he shoots quite straight action incredibly beautifully and just not a frame wasted or the mm. and the camera's just not a millimeter out of place and it's not conventional it doesn't feel like conventional filmmaking but it's incredibly effective sort of solid filmmaking but in this sort of moment a, a shootout or a car crash it doesn't feel effectively off it just feels like oh that didn't quite work yeah yeah i agree I it agree. just looks like i don't know tv movie filmmaking and yet it's finished that sequence with that wonderful shot looking down at johnny collapsed on the stairs wounded and the mother dead with her arm outstretched through the banister with blood on her hands quite literally mm. reaching out to the guy who knew her terrible secret it's a wonderful sort of final scene as you fade out on episode one of the dead zone yeah <laughs> exactly the rest of the film looked very grey and kind of a bit drab. And it's kind of overlit. I think it's a thing that Cronenberg sort of likes. And again, it's even effective in some of the later films when things are strange enough. But it there's just sometimes there are too many lights on in the room, you know, and it's like yeah. there are no shadows and it's all just sort of bright light. And it can make things very flat. And when he's doing very strange things, that kind of unblinking all the lights on thing can be quite disturbing. Right. But when it's not really strange, it's just people having a chat in the living room exactly Uh, it's just a bit blah I think it's quite good in terms of the setting I think it's a very bleak film it's supposed to take place over several years I think or at least 18 months Mm. but it seems to be locked permanently in winter obviously Mm. because it was filmed in a block in Canada and the whole film is sort of white and bleached and cold and frosty but I I quite like that aesthetic for the whole movie because it is a very dour tragic film sure there isn't an awful lot of warmth i think i can count the number of times somebody smiles in it yeah exactly mm. <laughs> walking at completely inappropriate moments <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's particularly frightening usually when he's telling kids to read something about a headless horseman oh yeah <laughs> which he would eventually end up playing in 1999 for oh, tim yeah. burton didn't he yeah right yeah yeah <laughs> hey and i think just while we're talking about casting herbert long who surely is only just remembered as um, Inspector Clouseau's hapless and driven mad boss from the Pink Panther films. Uh-huh. Funny seeing him as a um, authoritative psychiatrist. Yes. Sure. Although I'd question his methods in some cases in this movie, and I'm slightly puzzled that he does house calls years after yeah. his patients have left the hospital. The one thing I found quite odd is that he is hovering over Johnny's bed the moment that he wakes up after five years of being in a coma. So does he just hover just in case yeah just or... every day for hours on end <laughs> did he know <laughs> and that was a great example and it's really early in the film but that's a great example of a film without a kind of clear point of view or even what is the like you say he was just there and he's woken up are we with the doctor going oh my god he's woken up mm. or are we with him going oh good morning where am what room am i in it's just sort of <laughs> happening but you don't really know how you're meant to feel or what mm. is quite going on. Yeah. You know, Stephen King can totally hook you in when people go into a diner and buy a coffee or whatever. Mm. We're in there, we believe it, we know what we're doing and how we feel about it. Mm. That was just an example of a flat, dead scene because we didn't really know what it, any of it meant. Exactly, no. yeah. So the film and the book is called The Dead Zone, but they don't really touch on The Dead Zone I think one line. And it was very strange because I think it's a totally different thing in the book. Mm. In the book, I think the dead zone is like they talk about part of his brain, which is not working properly or they can't see something. And it's an idea that it's a whole aspect of him and possibly tying into this idea that he's going to die and stuff. Uh So clearly they wrote out a whole medical mumbo jumbo. Right. But 
a very feeble thing they wrote back in to say they should have just moved on without it. I mean, why pay service to the title in such a kind of feeble way, I thought? Yeah. Yeah. It's explained as being the part of his visions that he may be able to change, but we've never seen that visualised in any way. So it seems to come from nowhere and go nowhere. It's a very odd thing. And he talks about it so late in the film as Mm. well. So it's not something he tries to come to grips with or tries to understand he just almost in passing mentions it mm. and then we don't really talk about it again no oh shit there's only 20 minutes to go and we haven't said what the title of the film is we're a bit oh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> but it always feels like an applause line when they try to get yeah. the title of the movie in doesn't it yeah. you feel like you should just applaud stand up and leave yeah <laughs> <laughs> He actually starts getting the headaches before the crash. Mm. So does he always have the powers and the crash kind of catalyzes the powers being in effect or was the crash what brought on the powers? I just wasn't sure. No, it's a bit of a mess, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I don't think that does the doesn't do the story any favors. It doesn't create a weight or a momentum heading towards what subsequently happens or any kind of expositional value or mm. kind of ironic value. It's just like, oh, what did that mean, you know? And it's almost like they chickened out from, well, how would a car crash give them these powers? But it's cleaner and more effective, and, and it's a fantastic film, so let mm. it be fantastic. You know, he had a crash, he was in a coma, and then after he came out of it, he could do these things. But like you say, yeah, was it just about to happen? And, oh, whoops, he had a car crash at the same time. It muddies it. It doesn't make it any clearer. It just makes it sort of woollier. Yeah. yeah. It's the remnant of a scene. It was supposed to include flashes of the car crash that was about to come, so he was having a first premonition of something that was going to happen to him. Uh, oh. But how he's getting that, because he gets all of his visions by touching a person, uh-huh. So maybe touching the roller coaster gives him a premonition <laughs> of a crash. Right. I, that doesn't make any sense. Right. But there was also a childhood <laughs> scene that was shot that showed him predicting a guy getting electrocuted whilst trying to jumpstart his car uh-huh. after he gets a blow to the head. So there's this suggestion that he gets a blow to the head as a child, becomes clairvoyant or unlocks a clairvoyant power. And you see that as him as a child and then you see the roller coaster scene and you have flashes of something that's coming and then he has the coma and after that he's able to really get strong visions by touching people. Mm. But again, they seem to have lost confidence. They cut out the childhood scene, they cut out the future flashes, they cut him out of all of the visions that they could cleanly cut him out of. It just feels like Cronenberg desperately trying to avoid something or not being fully confident in something. Yeah. And it's similar to the way that you were talking about how the film seems sort of dramatically flat in places. And I think it's because at this point in his career, Cronenberg was just not very comfortable with scenes that are emotional. So you have lots of scenes of people crying in this movie, but they always hide their face or they're in a Mm. car with Mm. the rain falling on the window. And he just doesn't feel terribly comfortable with it. Although, oddly enough, this is the first of two films that will end with a low shot of a woman crying over the dead body of the main character because the fly ends in exactly the same way. But the fly I found much more affecting as a tragedy. So maybe he learned something from this one and was able to do it more effectively in in right. his next big studio picture. Oh, okay. And I can only imagine he, for someone who has the confidence to have made half a dozen completely independent films with an incredibly distinctive voice, to then go and work for a studio which needs to be a commercial film on a um, valuable property, hmm. I can't imagine that it was a an easy ride, you know? Sure. No, especially with Dino De Laurentiis, who I think was yeah. quite famously a very strong personality in the room. Right. So interestingly, in comparison with Cronenberg's reserved approach... On the other hand, you have Michael Kamen doing one of his first big studio pictures. This is well before Highlander and Die Hard and Mm. the movies that made him incredibly famous and won him awards and so on. But he is churning away with the strings on the score, making a very tragic and yet brooding soundtrack for the whole thing, which seems kind of at odds with it at some points. Or maybe it's just that in retrospect, this sort of full on, very present, very thematic approach to film scoring seems kind of anachronistic and old-fashioned when viewed in 2019. I have to say, I do love the score. Yeah, I do too, yeah. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. And I think if there's any emotion in the movie, it's definitely coming from Michael Kamen and Brooke Adams Mm. rather than 
Christopher Walken or anything that David Cronenberg is doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I like the score and I liked what it was doing in the film too, actually. I, you know, I like scores that are doing the work, you know, not just noodle, you know, little noodles in the background that let you know that something's there. Mm. Shouldn't be saying the same things as the picture or, you know, saying things twice. But, um, and so, yeah, maybe if there was an absence of those things on the surface, it doesn't hurt for the music to be doing that. But, uh, yeah. I liked it in the film, actually, I've got to say. I'm a huge Michael Kamen fan. So I, I remember watching What Dreams Make and I thought his score for that was just phenomenal, mm. just insanely good. And I have a soft spot for scores that are overly dramatic, but not in that ridiculously cheesy Hollywood way. I felt that Cayman had good control of emotion and suspense, especially in that Castle Rock killer scene. Holy crap, such great restrained score for when they're about to barge into the bathroom and the guy's like setting up the scissors. It's just, oh, beautifully arranged, that music for that Mm. scene. The main theme, I think, for the score was an arrangement of uh, a Sibelius, the Finnish composer Sibelius, um, from his symphony number two, uh, second movement. And so when I first watched this film, I thought... I know this score. How do I know this score? (laughs) (laughs) And because I grew up playing classical music, I probably would have heard Sibelius' symphony at some point, and that's why I knew it. But it was such a memorable score and theme as well for the film. Yeah, I think he only had 10 days to write it in. Uh, So I don't blame him for (laughs) quickly drawing on a classical theme that he can reuse. I mean, a lot of other composers do that when they're in a pinch. Uh He tells a wonderful story in the liner notes of the CD where he was composing the score on his piano at home late at night because he was having to sort of work pretty much 20-hour days to get this thing done in time. And eventually his neighbours came round and begged him to stop because (laughs) they couldn't sleep and he was giving their children nightmares. Oh, (laughs) right. That's fantastic. I, I think all the romantic scenes were definitely heightened by the score yeah. Um, because, yeah, I don't think Walken added anything. And it did make the romance more real mm. because I just didn't feel any chemistry between Walken and Sarah. It's quite a strange when she comes over and gives him a charity fuck. That's quite a strange <laughs> scene, isn't it? I mean, it's, I almost loved it. I mean, no, dramatically, it was really interesting. Yeah. You know, and then she's, but then she's back to her husband and she's got a little boy and stuff. It was quite a beautifully strange moment and it's a dramatically a really interesting idea but slightly perhaps the wind went out of it because there wasn't really chemistry between the two of them she's like you know we've waited long enough and he was kind of like okay (laughs) (laughs) and um (laughs) staring blankly (laughs) yeah i mean i thought it was a really touching scene when they were eating dinner and her kid was there and johnny's father was there and i was like wow this is a very warm and touching scene yeah and dad says it's so lovely to have a family around the table again there's good stuff going on there yeah It's a very odd choice, though, isn't it? I mean, why would she do that to him? It feels more like she's seeking closure for herself than it does that she's seeking closure for Johnny. Exactly. But the good thing is, is, as you said before, Brooke Adams is just so warm and so lovely and so adorable. She's a lot like other 80s leading ladies like Karen Allen. You can't hate her, really. Mm. So she gets away with it. But still, sneaking away from your husband <laughs> to give your ex-boyfriend a quick pity shag <laughs> while your kid's in the other room. Yeah, it's not great, is it? Yeah. <laughs> now it's time for Random Trivia. So, Dan, what piece of fascinating trivia have you divined by touching someone and getting a vision today? My trivia today involves one of Johnny's premonition scenes. Uh, It's the one... Actually, I'm not sure whether it's all of them, but it's it's (laughs) definitely... There is one where Johnny is flinching while he's having this premonition. And I read that Cronenberg is actually firing rounds off of a... 35 Magnum gun with blanks oh, yeah. off camera, just firing out blanks from this gun. And that's why walking is flinching, sort of involuntary, because of this huge, huge sound that's happening off screen. Uh, which apparently this was Walken's <laughs> idea as well. So uh, he, he brought it on himself. <laughs> 
Well, at least it was Walken's idea, because I understand on the set of The Exorcist, William Friedkin was in the habit of firing shotguns to make people jump. Wow. But the cast didn't actually uh, sign off on that and were trying to plead with him, please stop doing this. I'm an actor. I don't need this. No. But he would still keep doing it. So people would turn up and they'd try and make friends with somebody on the set who would say, okay, just so you know, the shot gun is behind there the 38 is over there and there's also a handgun right in the back <laughs> just so that they knew right where all of this was going to come from wow because okay. he was a lunatic <laughs> that that is terrifying <laughs> and that's our trivia yeah Well, no discussion of The Dead Zone would be complete without talking about the politics of the film. Oh, yes. Because the book was written by Stephen King as an answer to the question that he asked himself, which is, could a political assassination ever be justified? And if it could, could you write a novel from the perspective of the assassin and still make it something that the reader would empathise with. Sure. It seems quite prophetic in terms of the figure of Greg Stilson, played by Martin Sheen, as this complete lunatic who is a corrupt real estate developer who is presenting himself as a man of the people and a populist and appears at rallies with hard hats on and has people chanting his name and following him Mm -hmm. without any kind of critical thinking whatsoever and is surrounded by very nasty characters who are blackmailing newspaper editors and threatening people. Yes. I feel like you're reaching for something here. I I can't tell what it is. <laughs> it does seem incredibly prophetic and even in 2006 David Cronenberg said unfortunately Stilson is not a cartoon character who's too absurd to be real. Uh-huh. 10 years later. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Here we are. Yeah. Jesus. It's uh yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> Manchin's character was pretty well portrayed, I thought. Like he was a complete raging, power-hungry, running for senator sort of guy, kissing babies and <laughs> shaking everyone's hand. And um, But I, also, I always laugh at films where even though the good guy is about to do something bad, they can't do something bad. So he never actually shoots Greg Stilson. No. But he still <laughs> saves the day. <laughs> Though the picking the baby up, protecting himself with the baby is such a, you know, narratively killer moment. You know, yeah. it's... um. Because if he had been killed or wounded, he would have been a, a martyr or, you know, killed by a crazed killer. But um, really lovely, and obviously it's from the book, I'm sure, the picking yeah. up the baby to protect himself is such a killer moment. It was great that that was in there and they made that work. Yeah, yeah. it's iconic. It's also, you know, plot-wise in movies, when they completely show exactly what they're going to do and it happens exactly how they planned it, it's a bit boring, so <laughs> having something go wrong is always interesting. Yeah, I think that sequence is pretty exciting, actually. I think that's the one action sequence that Cronenberg really shows what he could be capable of in future movies. Hmm. It's very tense, it's exciting, there's real suspense in there, sort of like exploring the house in the Castle Rock Killer sequence. I think that political assassination scene is a really good one. Hmm. When he drops the bullet over the edge and it's hmm. been kicked around on the floor, that was um, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, and orchestrating the crowd and... yeah. I think that's a really good sequence. In the original book, it isn't Sarah's baby that's picked up and it was a suggestion of Christopher Walken's that they tie the two together. Mm. Yeah, right, right, right. I think it works really well. I think it does. And also because I felt like characters just keep appearing and disappearing throughout the film. So having kind of Sarah throughout the film was Mm. kind of nice and anchoring. Yeah, especially because you're looking for somebody to identify with. Mm. (laughs) Mm. She's probably the closest that we've got. Yeah, exactly. So I guess the question is, do we think that Trump's career could be ended by him protecting himself with a baby? (laughs) I don't know. I think it's plausible. (laughs) Well, I mean, what's incredible about that moment is the film is from a time when political careers could end in a heartbeat if you did, you know, the slightest suggestion of sort of improper behaviour, mm-hmm. you know, like having an affair or, you know, being caught in a lie or some bad judgment or looking goofy eating a sandwich, <laughs> you know. And now, you know, Trump has 45 credible accusations of rape or sexual assault and they he just brushes them all off. And so you really, really have to say, what would it take to end his career? What would mm-hmm. people not take? And it's really hard to think of how high that thing would be, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. 
But it does add an interesting footnote to the dead zone, I think, that this is the one aspect mm. of it I think has lived on. People were tweeting a lot of pictures of Stilson during Trump's rise to power. I think mm. it gives it yeah. a very yeah. relevant social context now. And just does. one thing I was struck by, sort of tangentially to what we're talking about, again, you know, it's in our minds like, oh, holy shit, Trump could launch nuclear weapons. Mm. The sort of high-tech hand scanner mm. missile launch thing has not aged very well, I thought. No. Um, <laughs> looked a bit kind of goofy and... Um, plasticky and whereas we know now because there were photographs of it lying around at Mar-a-Lago we know now that the hardware you know it just has keys and it has a punch code and Mm. probably 1983 tech with a keypad and some keys and some buttons would have aged better than (laughs) (laughs) I mean that's always the the risk of showing technology in any film Mm. who knows what the next age of technology will be after digital like maybe something else will exist that we cannot possibly fathom right now which Cronenberg knocked out of the park in existence mm-hmm. it's amazing uh-huh. the kind of organic tech in that yes i didn't i see recently that somebody has invented a flesh-like cover for your mobile phone that you oh, can squeeze yeah. and pinch to interact with yeah it's got sensors <laughs> yes you can tickle your phone so creepy <laughs> existence is here uh, yes. <laughs> coming to you live from the movie oubliette theater it's the prestigious movie awards Hey, hey, I'm sure you've all had premonitions of how fantastic the Moobly Awards are. It's where we present a bunch of our favourite nuclear exploding parts of the film in a number of morally questionable categories. Best quote! My favourite quote comes from Dr. Wyzak, played by Herbert Lom, when he's asked the very important political question that's at the heart of the novel and film. Would you kill Hitler if you were given a chance to travel back in time and kill him before mm-hmm. World War II kicks off? And the doctor answers, All right, I'll give you an answer. I'm a man of medicine. I'm expected to save lives and ease suffering. And I love people. Therefore, I would have no choice but to kill the son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No choice at all. (laughs) No, exactly. Although, interestingly, Stephen Fry did a fantastic novel called Making History where somebody did prevent the birth of Hitler and the end result was that the Germans won the Second World War because rather than an egomaniacal lunatic that launched too many wars on too many fronts and lost, Uh somebody who was actually very intelligent took his place and took over the whole of Western Europe. Oh, wow. Okay. So Hitler was a good thing. (laughs) Maybe. No, it's tricky, isn't it? (laughs) How about you? My favourite quote is when Johnny wakes up from his five-year coma and Sarah comes to visit him and he comments on her hair and, and she says to him, you lost weight. And he responds, I call it the coma diet. Lose weight while you sleep. (laughs) The entire film, I keep trying to do Christopher Walken accents, and I cannot. I cannot do it. (laughs) I don't know how he speaks. (laughs) Now, the way he delivers that line as well, it kind of ruins the joke almost, doesn't it? Right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Call it comma diet. (laughs) Lose weight while you sleep. (laughs) What? Sorry? What? Let me just rewind that. I didn't catch that. (laughs) I tried doing his delivery, and the only thing I can say is his name. It's just... Christopher Walken. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, the other one I know is more cowbell. But oh, yeah, sure of course. <laughs> most 80s moment. So what I thought was the most 80s was just the fact that it's another film about a person that develops psychic abilities. I mean, it was a very 70s and 80s trope. Uh, you've got mm. The Fury that we've covered, you've yeah. got Firestarter, Don't Look Now, Carrie, uh, Dreamscape, which I haven't actually seen, but it's also mm. about a psychic. But at the same time, I feel like it kind of carries on in the 90s with all the X-Men movies and stuff like that. So maybe it's an ongoing thing, but... I, 
for some reason, 70s and 80s psychic movies seem to stand out to me. Yeah, there were a whole ton of them, and it all fits into this sort of fascination with the supernatural towards the end of that era. Mm, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, Definitely. yeah. How about you, 80s? Well, for me, the moment that I thought just reeked of 80s was the moment when Chris, who refuses to go out to play hockey and die on the lake, turns away from his father to return to programming his Apple II micro computer in basic <laughs> just typing that program in one line at a time yeah yeah thought, yeah wow that's my childhood oh wow best hair or costume as i have already mentioned this film is so drab there is there any best hero costume uh the only thing i can think of is is Johnny's outfit as a teacher. He's got a vest on, a tie, he's got a blazer. Is he about to play cricket? Or is he about to graduate from a private high school? I'm not sure. Uh, but <laughs> Does he have elbow patches as well? I can't remember. Yeah, I can't remember. He should have. Sort of stereotypical look for a teacher of the 80s, I guess. Yeah, very much so. And I love the way that he has sort of flat, bowl-cut hair, pre-accident yeah. and then afterwards it's just standing up on end yeah it's like he's subdued Christopher Walken at the start and then he's just full-blown <laughs> Christopher Walken yeah, after it goes full Walken after the coma yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Walken <laughs> well for me I think it has to be Johnny's habit of turning the collar of his coat up so that he looks sort of like a avenging angel with wings oh, or a raven yeah. even sure. or to me he looks kind of like an astrologer we have in the UK called Mystic Meg <laughs> oh really? <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> really cheesy paranormal thing. There's no need for it, uh -huh. but I think it's a it's a great touch. Hilarious. <laughs> favorite scene. Uh, my favorite scene is the first vision that Walken has in the hospital oh. because it's it really makes you jump when he grabs the nurse's hand, and I just love the whole mechanics of him being in the vision. So as you're cross cutting between him looking sweatily up to the nurse and saying, your daughter is screaming, your house is on fire, and him looking back to see the progress of the conflagration. And there's wonderful, scary touches like a goldfish bowl that's boiling, and <laughs> the goldfish is boiling yeah. alive in there. <laughs> it's a really tense scene, and Michael Kamen is just screeching with the strings and the churning drama mm. of it. I think it's electrifying, and one of the things that really sort of pulls you into the movie after what is a fairly drab opening, to be honest. Oh, I love... The, the shots of the goldfish bowl and it's bubbling and then more and more, more rigorously and then it just explodes in the shatter of glass. It's, it's a really nice touch and it really sort of heightens the sort of tension of that scene. That's actually my favourite effect of the film, that that goldfish bowl. I don't know how they the did goldfish it. Bowl. Did, they, did they put an <laughs> element in there? I don't know, but oh, it's so so well done. It is. It's fantastic, yeah. And the reason that Walken is sweaty in that scene is because they knew that in the scenes where he's in the burning bed, they would be covering him with that flame-retardant gel that they put on stunt people oh, when they do full right. body burns. Yeah. So the reason that he's sweating in the hospital scene is because they knew that he'd be shiny anyway, so they just tie it together that way. Oh, it's right. so clever because it doesn't even occur to you that that's why he's shiny, but that's why he's shiny. Yeah, right. Okay, okay. How about you, your favourite scene? My favourite scene, I mentioned it. Uh, it's the Castle Rock killer scene. Mm. Yeah, that shot of the killer donning that leather coat and then placing that scissors on, on the bathroom bench and and I love it when the score dies away and it's just silence and then you just hear him opening his mouth just that tiny sound of his opening his mouth as he kind of lowers towards the scissors and then there's Whoa. this terrifying string glissandi that goes <laughs> and oh chills chills up my spine mm. every time I watch it. It's a, it's a masterful scene. Yeah, it really is good. Most cliched horror moment. The biggest horror cliche I think in this movie is Frank Dodd's bedroom. 
So any self-respecting 20-something serial killer must have a bedroom with cowboy wallpaper and children's toys, including creepy dolls, uh-huh. a rocking horse, comic books. He should clearly be shown to be locked inside his childhood with a domineering mother. Mm. It worked for Norman Bates. It works so well for the Castle Rock killer here as well. <laughs> that is definitely a trope. It is. Uh, I would say the cliche was just a premonition scenes, I guess. But I don't know how else you would really convey premonition scenes as well. So it's always got the person that's having the premonition kind of either convulsing or flinching or just looking blankly at a wall or their eyes roll <laughs> to the back of the head. Uh, and it's kind of got all of those things in, in this movie. But it doesn't do what kind of 90s movies started doing and they would put some ridiculous filter over the premonition so oh, it was either God, high yeah. contrast or just really grainy or they would have a really long shutter speed so everything just blurred together in this kind of mess of blurriness so uh, i i applaud the dead zone for not going in that direction favorite special effect so you like exploding goldfish bowls for me it's another explosion it's the moment when Johnny is shot when he's trying to kill Stilson at his rally oh. and the lampshade behind him explodes when Johnny's oh, shot so you yeah. know the bullet has gone straight through him and it's a slow motion shot as well so the timing is like really tight yeah. I love that it really sells the impact and the fact that he has been mortally wounded yeah it's yeah yeah good. definitely uh, makes him much more theatrical and almost stylized love that effect very cool best sound effect I don't know whether I had a favourite sound, but there was one sound in this movie that just kind of made me giggle a little bit. Uh, So (laughs) when Johnny is having that premonition of the Castle Rock Killer and he's at the gazebo and I think he's standing on snow, it's got that lovely, crunchy, squidgy snow sound that you hear. Uh, because This is mine as well. Really? Wow, okay. Because yeah. <laughs> as someone who has not seen or touched snow in over 25 years, it's such a great sound. I love that sound. And especially in that scene, I, I think it's location sound as well. I don't think it's Foley. I it think is, it's yeah, it on is. location. It sounds like, you know, when you sit on one of those old leather couches and it makes a rubbing sound? (laughs) Yeah. That's what it sounds like to me. (laughs) I love it. It's very distinct. And living in a country that actually does have snow on a reasonably regular basis, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's a sound I instantly recognize and I appreciated hearing it on the soundtrack. I thought Mm. it's such a nice detail. Really puts you there. Yes, really does. Most funniest scene. My funny scene. I've already mentioned it. Is when <laughs> when Christopher Walken says, "The coma diet. <laughs> <laughs> Lose weight while we sleep. <laughs> Can't coma diet. Lose weight while we sleep." <laughs> it was just hilarious. Just completely out of the blue and uh, tremendously funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love that. Mine is one where I think I was thinking about the film too much. You know, when you sort of find yourself sort of outside of the film looking in mm-hmm. and you try to imagine the reality of this. So it's the moment when Johnny is tutoring Chris in his house and Sarah turns up at the door and he meets Sarah's husband for the first time and he's clearly a oh. douchebag. But yeah. when he closes the door... He has a full-on emotional breakdown and sobs with this kid there. (laughs) So I'm just thinking about this poor kid's experience, which is his teacher suddenly bursts into floods of tears, Uh then hugs him, and then while he's holding his hands, starts convulsing violently and staring blank-eyed at him (laughs) as he has a psychic premonition of him drowning in a lake. But I just think of it from this kid's perspective. It's like, what the fuck is going on with my tutor here he's like convulsing yeah. and staring at me and he yeah. still likes him after that it's, mm. it's a bit of a stretch i think i'd be sort of saying to saying to my dad hey dad you know those tutoring sessions i think i'm done yeah and that's our mooblies yeah
Welcome back, listeners. We are here with the final verdict. Should the Dead Zone be celebrated as a prophetic hero of psychic cinema, or should it be careened anticlimactically into a milk tanker and launched back into the oubliette to be lost forever? Jonathan, you are our <laughs> guest today, and you did pick the film. What were your final thoughts, your final verdict for the film? Well, my final verdict would have to be it all in all, it doesn't really hold up as a great film, but as a crucial piece of the Cronenberg puzzle, from the very strange indies to studio films, I think it's an essential step. Mm-hmm. And for Stephen King on film, I think it's an essential step. So I don't think we can afford to lose the dead zone. Right. Ah. Interesting. Interesting. I was very torn by this film. Uh, I remember the first time watching this film, because I've seen it, I think, only twice. But the first time I watched it, I didn't actually like it. I thought it was a bit bland. But watching it again, it, I think it kind of holds up on, on many levels. There are some really great scenes in it, but there are some very kind of boring, bland scenes as well, and Walken's not. Oh, I, th- I think he was completely miscast for this film. But at the same time, I was very, I was still enthralled by the story, and I, I don't know whether it's to do with the fact that the source material was great, so Stephen King was just a really good writer, and it just translated well to film. Uh, I don't. I think it's it's definitely one of Cronenberg's weakest in his filmography. I don't know whether I would recommend this to other people. I think it, it is a bit tame, and and I feel like the political part of it, although it is very prophetic and very profound, I don't think it was executed that well, and it seems a little bit silly. I would actually vote to to throw it back in the oubliette to be lost forever. Conrad, <laughs> deciding vote here. <laughs> Oh, so it's down to me. Well, I do agree that Christopher Walken is miscast in this movie for one half of the movie. I don't think Uh he's great as a romantic lead necessarily. I think as a pale prophet of doom who is driven to a political assassination and is pained by his foreknowledge of events. I think he's great in that. I think he does great in that side of the story. And I think Mm -hmm. when he's having his visions, he is sort of freaky and terrifying. And you do believe with those pale eyes and that pale face that he does look like somebody who's haunted perpetually throughout the movie. I think the episodic nature kind of works if you experience it as sort of a development for his character as he learns more, although it is a bit stop-start and I prefer the Castle Rock Killer piece to the will he or won't he go ice skating Mm, (laughs) sequence, which is a bit dull. But I think overall, it's not great Cronenberg. It's not A-list Stephen King. But there have been 48 adaptations of Stephen King Wow! at this point. Doctor Sleep marks the 48th feature film huh. that has been based on a Stephen King novel, excluding all of the direct-to-video sequels, which is a pretty amazing wow. figure that we're up to at this point. When you think of all the dross that we've had over the course of the years... I think The Dead Zone's actually a pretty good one. I mm-hmm. I always enjoy watching it. I love Michael Kamen's score. I think it's the heart and soul of the film. And yeah, I think I would. I think I would what? recommend it to people. Oh, I think okay. it is an essential turning point in Cronenberg's career. And I think it's a better Stephen King movie than people remember. So mm. I would say, let it go. Yeah. Outvoted. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Be free. Be free, fly. Yep. Well, I gotta gotta concede, I guess. But uh, it has been amazing having you on the podcast, Jonathan. I am a huge fan of your films. Uh, do you have anything on the horizons? And where can our listeners follow you on social media or any other avenue? Yeah. Well, look. Thank you for having me on uh, and for chasing me up. Well, I'm on Twitter, which is Mr. Jonathan King. Uh-huh. Not on Facebook. I do have things on the horizon. I've been working on a graphic novel for the last couple of years, which is why I've been so busy. Oh. So it's a graphic novel for kids. It's called The Inkberg Enigma, and um, it's going to be out ooh. in May next year. Published in New Zealand, Australia, the UK, and the USA. It's a kind of creepy adventure for kids. So it's for eight to twelve year olds with a kind of under the mountain Lovecraft for kids 
kind of vibe. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. Yeah, so that's that's a big part of what I've been doing the last couple of years. Um, I'm writing a feature film at the moment. And so, yeah, I hope to make that in the next year or so. But it's a very long, grueling road to making films, in New Zealand particularly, if, you're, if, uh, if your name yeah. is not Peter or Taika. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> always trying to navigate a path. How, how do I keep telling the stories that I do and how do I keep doing the things? And so comics have been a big part of that. Mm-hmm. And, but, yeah, sort of finding my way back to um, making another film. But, you know, I'd probably to that my last film was a very low budget film and it was the best time I had making a film uh-huh, sure. process wise um, that's probably the way I would go again when I've got a script that I that I want to make really well we're looking forward to seeing your next film and, and the graphic you. novel sounds amazing maybe that might uh, attract some attention in terms of an adaptation of some kind possibly I didn't yes. I certainly didn't write it with that in mind but who knows <laughs> who knows mm. maybe David Cronenberg <laughs> will want to make it oh maybe <laughs> And if you haven't already, please, please go see Black Sheep. Mm. It is a horror comedy masterpiece. It really is. (laughs) (laughs) And if you do want to follow us, you can look us up as Movie Oubliette on all socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can also email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. Indeed, and if you'd like to support the show, consider going over to Patreon and becoming a patron. For as little as a dollar, you can suggest movies for future episodes, and for five dollars, you can get access to lots of exclusive bonus content, including unreleased portions of our discussions with guests like Jonathan today. Yes, we always go off on tangents every time we have a guest. (laughs) do. And please give us a rating and review on whatever podcast platform you are using. It always helps us out. It is. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And speaking of gifts, (laughs) we are rapidly approaching that festive time of year. And our next episode, unbelievably, will be our Christmas special. Yeah. What are we doing? It's a festive classic. The 1974 Canadian slasher movie, Black Christmas. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Tis the season to be stabby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to be stabby. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it stars Olivia Hussey, Keir Doulet, Margot Kidder, Andrea Martin and John Saxon. And we will be joined by another very special guest. Mm, last one for the year. Yes, exciting. Thanks again, Jonathan, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, it's been great chatting with you. Thanks so much. Bye, everyone. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Cheer, bro. We review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie yet. I need your support, I need your expertise, and most importantly, I need your money.